King Solomon, who penned the words we're going to consider today, he, he reigned at the highest point in all of Israel's history. He built God's permanent dwelling place among his people in building the temple. He ruled with wisdom that he had been granted from God. And so he executed justice in the land that he ruled. The people were blessed, and they prospered under his reign. But there was a crack in his character. He followed forbidden women, women that God had told him not to, women who turned his heart from loving the Lord, and ultimately led to the downfall of Israel. The kingdom was torn in two, never to be fully reunited again, and both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom ended up destroyed and taken into exile. And this is the man who God used to write the words of warning that we'll consider today. And so we see both in his life and in his teaching in the passage that we're going to consider, we see the same lesson, really, that sexual sin is seductive but destructive. Sexual sin is seductive but destructive, and so we must resist it at all costs. If you're here today and you're already resisting this temptation, then praise God. I hope this sermon will only encourage you to keep fighting the battle for sexual purity. But perhaps you're here today and you're discouraged, and maybe you feel like you just can't have victory in this area of temptation and sin. Well, I hope to persuade you by the end of this sermon that you can have victory by God's grace. But maybe some of you are here, and maybe this is your first time even in a church, and maybe you aren't a Christian, and you know that Christians have strong views about sexuality. Maybe you don't even know why you should fight. Maybe you don't even see that you need to resist. And I hope to persuade you by the end of the sermon so that you're convinced that you need to resist too, and that you'll know how. We're back in the book of Proverbs, and we'll be looking at chapter 7 today. So, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to walk in the way of wisdom. And King Solomon spends chapters 1 through 9 persuading his son of the worth of wisdom, so that the son will prize and pursue wisdom passionately. That's his goal in these opening nine chapters. And so far, we've seen that the father has demonstrated the worth of wisdom in accepting correction or avoiding bad company, honoring God with your money, being a nice neighbor, parenting your children, guarding your heart, enjoying your marriage, escaping debt, working hard, and preserving unity in the community. But in the midst of all of these lessons, the fathers repeatedly 
and pointedly warned his son about the seduction of sexual sin. Our passage today is the third such warning, and he tells us that this is a dangerous temptation and it requires God's wisdom to overcome. And so God is speaking through Solomon to us today as our heavenly Father. And so we should pay close attention to what He has to say. Let's pray and ask the Lord for His help before we consider Proverbs 7. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would give us eyes to see Your glory and ears to hear Your voice. And Lord, we ask for hearts that are soft to accept Your Word and to obey Your commands. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you're not already there, turn with me to Proverbs 7 and follow along as I read it aloud for us. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its, its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. 
Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. It's a sobering text, a sobering story from the Father, but the main point of our passage is that we must resist the seduction of sexual sin by embracing God's Word. That's the main argument that I have for us today from Proverbs 7. Resist the seduction of sexual sin by embracing God's Word. The father here is telling his son a cautionary tale about the simpleton being seduced and finally slain by the seductress. This woman, this forbidden woman, she's the, she's the embodiment of adultery, sexual sin personified. We've seen the Father do this already with Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and here it's one particular kind of sin, one kind of folly that is being personified by this woman. And the point of the story, the aim that the Father has is to expose our own weaknesses, our own temptations, and our own foolishness. And so, rather than thinking, well, that's not a problem for me. I wouldn't be tempted that way. I'll never fall into that trap. Every one of us, whether we're a man or a woman, whether we're married or single, whether we're old or young, we should see in this story our own vulnerability too, so that we would not face the same fate. And so, I have five tactics to consider in the fight against sexual sin from our passage today. We'll look at them each in turn. The first, the father goes on the offensive, and after that, he goes a little more defense. So, let's consider the first, the first tactic for fighting sin. Number one, embrace God's Word. Embrace God's Word. And we see that in the first five verses. Look there, verses one through five. Before the father even gets to his story, he goes on the offense by saying that there is a way to be kept from this temptation. There's a way to overcome it, a way to avoid the fight even before it begins. And it's by embracing God's Word. Now, we've seen this lesson from the Father over and over and over again, really. But the Father sees that it's, it bears repeating. It's worth telling His Son this over and over again, and it's worth us considering this over and over again. Look in those first five verses. I don't know if you noticed, but there's actually seven commands there. Seven commands about embracing God's Word. As you'll recall from Michael's sermon series in the book of Revelation, where we see lots of series of seven, seven is an important number in the Bible. And it, it's, it's significant because it stands for completion, for, for totality, for wholeness. And so, in other words, the Father is saying, Son, embrace God's Word, word with all that you are, totally, fully, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, embrace it. And this is a lesson that all Christians know, right? It probably doesn't come as a surprise to you. But it's also one of those lessons that many Christians struggle to live out. We struggle to be committed to embracing God's Word. I wonder what your relationship with 
the Scriptures and God's Word, His commandments, His promises. I wonder what your relationship is like. The verbs are are significant here, those seven verbs. Notice them. Keeping God's Word, not simply reading it, but obeying it. Treasuring time in God's Word. Allowing God's Word to set the course and direction of your life. Even internalizing it pondering on it, delighting in it, enjoying it. And the Father even personifies the the wisdom that we receive from God's Word as as a beloved sister or an intimate, a close, even a best friend, someone and something to be cherished. Does that describe your relationship with the Word of God as a dear friend that you can't wait to spend time with? Maybe for some of you it does. I hope that's true for even many of you. Maybe you've worked hard at developing a habit of being regularly in God's Word, and you've enjoyed it more and more over the years. Praise God. Praise God for that. And if that is you, let me encourage you to share your secrets with others, with the rest of us, help other brothers and sisters to grow in taking steps of embracing God's Word themselves. Help them learn how you have found the, the, the ability to develop this kind of habit of delighting in the wisdom of God's Word and share how you've worked hard at putting it into practice in your life. Tell them how that's worked in your heart and in your life. That's what the Father is doing here in urging His Son to consider the Word and to embrace it and treasure it. So, parents, strive to pass on this love to your children. It's hard work. I know. I I struggle with Charlotte at times when we sit down for family devos, and she wants to do anything but read the Bible. But we want to instill this in our children. So, parents, strive. Work hard at doing it. Husbands, let me encourage you to wash your, your wives in the Word of God. Bring them into the Word. Teach them the things you're learning in the Word. Helping other people follow Jesus is part of what it means to follow Jesus yourself. And so, disciples disciple others. And so, it should be normal, part of all of our lives, to help one another embrace God's Word, to enjoy it. And so, Covenant Hope, it's our job That's part of our job description as members of this church, is to help each other embrace God's Word and to enjoy it together. And oftentimes, we enjoy it most when we're doing it together, don't we? In May, there's going to be a conference on this very topic, on one-to-one Bible reading and how to get the most out of time together, one-on-one in God's Word. Let me encourage you to make an effort to be there at that conference. It will be a great time to think about this topic. But maybe, maybe for some of you, that's not you yet. Maybe that, the way I described that relationship of enjoying God's Word, delighting in it, getting lots out of it, and being able to encourage others in it, that's not you. And I would encourage you to ponder why that's not you yet. What's keeping you from God's Word? Are 
their other priorities in your life? Or are you maybe not sure how to study God's Word? And that feels intimidating and very confusing. When you do open up the Bible, you, you struggle. Well, let me encourage you to find someone to help you grow in that. Maybe you're distracted by other delights. But the delight of God's Word is rich and good, and it will bless you. Make it a discipline, and then pray that it would become a delight. Pray with the psalmist, open my eyes, Lord, that I might see wonderful things in your law. God loves to answer that prayer. If you find yourself losing in the battle against sin, it may be because you aren't taking up the sword of the Spirit. Now, my goal here is not to make you feel guilty about your Bible reading, but to encourage you to embrace God's Word with all your heart so that you would be kept from sin. Picture an empty cup, and imagine if you had access to all the tech in the world and you were asked to remove all the air out of that cup. How might you go about doing that? Well, you could try and build some sort of machine that acts like a vacuum to suck all the air out of that cup, right? It would have to be sealed really carefully because, of course, the air would want to get back in as soon as you turned it off or if there was a, a gap in the seals. But there's actually a much simpler way to get all the air out of that cup. It's to pour something else in. Pour liquid into the glass will drive the air out immediately. And our hearts are just the same. Our hearts are desperate to be filled with something. And when we fill our hearts with God's Word and we treasure it up, we store it up in our hearts, it drives out other desires, especially desires to sin. This is what John Bunyan had written on the inside cover of his Bible. I, I may have repeated this in other sermons, but it bears repeating. He said, he wrote in his Bible, Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that's essentially what the Father is saying here. Fill your life with the Word of God, and it will drive out sin. Embrace God's Word, and it will guard you and keep you from sin. Now the Father turns to His story in verses 6 and following. And this story, as I said, is a, it's a warning to us of the seductiveness of sexual sin, which is embodied in this, this woman, this uh, forbidden, adulterous woman. And first, he gives the setting in verses 6 through 9 of the story, and what's the point there? Well, that's our second tactic. Second tactic is, don't linger near her. We see that in verses 6 through 9. Don't linger near her. The story starts with the father looking out through his window and seeing a young man, and he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that's his first mistake. No sin has been committed quite yet, but he's lacking sense. He's described as a simple person, a youth, and without sense. And so nothing necessarily sinful has happened yet, but already we know that this young man is in trouble. Why? Well, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 and see where he is. He's drawing near to her house. This is the forbidden woman, the adulteress that was mentioned in verse 5. And Did he go out looking for her? Is he 
just simply not being wise and got himself into a bad place. We're not actually told here in this text, but either way, he's in the wrong place. And he's, in the, he's there at the wrong time. Look at verse 9. It says it's in the darkness of night. You can, you can feel even there by that repeated phrase, you, you see in verse uh, 9, the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. You feel the darkness creeping in, don't you? And this darkness obviously represents moral darkness and a dark fate that will await this foolish young man. Nothing good happens after dark. But I wonder where the places and times that you feel most tempted are. Where are the places that you're most likely to fall into sin and be tempted? When are you most weak and vulnerable and susceptible to sin? Now, we must remember that this might look different for each one of us. This is wisdom. This isn't law, and so it might look a little different, different places for different people, different times. Maybe it's a part of the town. Maybe it's literally a place in Dubai. Maybe it's like Deera, when you go down to Deera and you park and you get out the car. What's scattered all over the floor? It's those little cards with women who are immodestly dressed with advertisements for massage parlors. Or maybe it's specific venues like a bar or a nightclub that you know that if you go there, you will likely face temptation. Maybe it could be even going to the beaches that are heavily populated with immodestly dressed men and women. Or maybe it's when you go away on a business trip and you stay in a hotel room far away from your family and friends. Maybe for a dating couple, it's just sitting alone late at night in their car when they really shouldn't be. But it's not just physical places either that can lead us into this sin. What about particular websites or forms of media? Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I know people who've decided not to be on those sites in order to avoid this kind of sin. They know that they would be easily tempted on those places, and so they've avoided them altogether, and I would say that's wise. Now, that's not a rule for everyone, but maybe it should be for you. You must decide. Perhaps it's certain movies, TV shows, more and more, they become graphic every year almost. They're aimed to, to titillate, to excite this kind of desire in us. But perhaps it's books, romance novels, or magazines that seem to excite and try to awaken this kind of appetite in you. But it doesn't even have to be a physical place or a, a website or a literal place at all. It can simply be a place that we go even in our own minds. Maybe it's a walk down memory lane or the dreamland that you've built in your own mind. Brothers and sisters, don't linger near her. Don't think, how close can I get to the cliff edge of sin 
without falling in. Run. Get away. As we read earlier in our service, in the catechism that we read, God calls us to avoid all opportunities for indecency. That's not legalism. That's wisdom. Do you remember King David, Solomon's own father? Do you remember his first mistake before he committed adultery? It was being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Scriptures make it very specific that he should have been out in battle, but instead he stayed home and went for a a walk on his rooftop. Don't linger near her. Don't put yourself into positions where you know that you'll be tempted in this way. Instead, be in the right places at the right times. Gather with the saints and embrace the Word together as a community. Go to bed at a reasonable time. Don't stay up late if you're going to be tempted. Spend time with people who help you grow in godliness, not people who seek to tempt you and seduce you in these ways. And so the simpleton finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and wrong things happen. Look there in verses 10 through 13. Suddenly, behold, the seductress enters, and what does she do? She allures him. That's our third tactic. Don't lust after her. Don't lust after her. We see that in 10 through 13. It's impossible not to notice this shady lady. Look how she's described there in verses 10 through 12. She's dressed to kill. She leaves nothing to the imagination. She's constantly on the prowl, desperate for attention, not only in the way that she dresses, but even in the way she acts. She's loud. She's drawing attention to herself, and like a predator, we're told, that she's lying in wait at every corner. She's looking for her next meal. That word behold in verse 10, it jumps right out. It's saying, see or look, here she is, there she comes. And most often we're lured away into sin by lusting with our eyes and the things that we see, aren't we? It's like the bait on the end of the hook that draws us in. Brothers and sisters, we need to guard our eyes to keep us from lusting, don't we? But let me address the the sisters for just a moment. I'm sure this passage doesn't exactly describe the look that you are going for. But it is worth asking yourself, do you desire this kind of attention? 1 Peter 3 challenges Christian women wives, in fact, that their beauty should not come from outward things like their hairstyle, their jewelry, or their clothing. Rather, their beauty should be the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. And so, let me encourage you, sisters, don't long for good looks. They will fade, but godliness will last forever. And the world is constantly bombarding us, especially women, with the definition of beauty that is exclusively physical. It has all to do with your curves, not your character. Don't believe those lies. Don't believe 
these definitions of beauty. Dress yourself in the fear of the Lord. Put on modesty and gentleness and Christ-like love. That's where true beauty lies. But brothers, we must think about this too. We must cultivate an appreciation for what God counts as beautiful. Husbands, compliment your wife as at least as much about her character as you do about her outfit. Single men, pursue this kind of woman, a woman who's godly and beautiful internally. And be the kind of man that a godly woman would want to be pursued by. As we read earlier in Matthew 5, verse 6, if you turn back there in your bulletins, in Matthew 5, on page 6, sorry, not verse 6, you'll see that Jesus teaches us that even a look of lust is adultery in the heart. Just one look. And so it's worth taking drastic steps. Jesus teaches us to sever sexual sin from our lives. Do you notice how serious Jesus thinks this sin is? More than the gouging out of the eye, more than the the, the graphic nature of thinking of cutting your own hand off, twice he says that lustful looks will lead to hell. Did you notice that as we read it earlier? End of verse 29, end of verse 30, your whole body go into hell. God takes sexual sin even in our minds very seriously. Maybe that shocks you. And if it does, there's probably two reasons why it sounds so strong to you. It's probably because you have too low a view of the holiness of God, and you have too low a view of the sinfulness of sin. But we must grow in seeing how holy God is, and how pure He is, and how evil sin is, even when it's only in our minds. Don't lust after her. But what does this seductress do? Look there in verse 13. First, she gives him the shock treatment. She grabs him and she kisses him. And then she opens her mouth to speak. And that's the fourth tactic in the fight against sin. Our fourth point, don't listen to her. We see that in verses 14 to 23. We've seen this warning against sexual sin already in Proverbs, but here for the first time, the father actually shares her seductive speech, her smooth words, and we see those in verses 14 to 20. Her words represent lies that lead us into sin. And what we have here is almost echoes of Eden, with a great tempter led Adam and Eve astray, turned their hearts away from God. The first lie that we see is that your religious ritual will cover your sin. Look there at verses 14 and 15. The adulteress says that she's given her, she's made her, her vows and her sacrifices. She uses religious language to ease his conscience, and, and she says, now I've come to you. I've done all the religious stuff, and, and now I can do this. Come with me. Are you tempted to think like this? 
at times does the temptation come in the form of thinking, I've been really good, and so God will understand if I indulge in just a little bit of sin now. I, I, I've got baptized, I, I've joined a church, I've been reading my Bible really well, and I just, I need this. Oh, that's a lie. Maybe you think actually, in a, in a different way, maybe you think, oh, this will be the last time, and then I'll go and do all the right religious things. And that will clean my slate. I'll serve in church. I'll make an effort to read my Bible. I'll pray more, but just this one last time. That's a lie. These are lies that come from the pit of hell, and God sees through them. The second lie that you see in verses 15 through 18 is that you'll be satisfied. Temptation always revolves around you and your satisfaction. Sin is always promising you something. Notice how she flatters him. She says, I've come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. It's all about this man. She's prepared a place for him, she says. It's comfortable. It smells good. It's ready. It's so easy. Just come on in. It will satisfy. You'll be satisfied. She calls him in verse 18 to a kind of love even. She says, we'll get our fill of it. It will delight us. Isn't that how most people explain this kind of sin? In terms of love, the sin of adultery, they say, we were in love. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with him. But this isn't love at all. This is lust. This is infatuation. It's a cheap counterfeit of love. Don't be fooled. The world has redefined love and, and wields it as a weapon against God and His Word. The world says, as long as it makes you happy and no one gets hurt, it's okay. If it's in the name of love. They've defined love as a feeling that you can fall in and out of rather than a commitment to faithfulness, as the Bible teaches. She even mentions her husband here, but says that she's going to find love with this other man. But even redefined, we know that sin, even with love redefined, we know that sin will never ultimately satisfy it, will us? Will it? It will never satisfy us. It's a lie. Don't believe it. The third lie that we see is there in verses 19 and 20, and that's that you'll be safe you'll be safe. My husband's away, she says. We won't get caught. He's not coming back. And this is one of the biggest lies that sin tells us, is that as long as you're careful, you'll not get caught, and you'll face no consequences. There'll be no cost. You'll be safe. But of course, we know that God sees everything. He knows all. All of our sin is an act of rebellion against Him, and that makes it the most unsafe thing we could do. Because God is holy, and He's just, and He judges sin. We see that it's anything but safe in verses 21 through 23. Look at those verses. Her lies are successful. She persuades Him. 
And look where it leads. All at once, he follows her. He's not thinking. And like an ox, he goes to slaughter. Like a stag, he's pierced by an arrow. Like a bird, he rushes into a trap. And he doesn't know that it's going to cost him his life. Sin can't be covered up by religious rituals. Sin provides fleeting pleasures, but it doesn't truly satisfy. And sin isn't safe. Sin only leads to death. Sin will kill us. And that's the end of the Father's story. It's a dark one, isn't it? And that's the point. And it's how he concludes there in verses 24 to 27. This is the final tactic. Don't be her next victim. Don't be her next victim. We must resist the seduction of sexual sin by embracing God's Word, or else we will end up being her next victim. The Father now addresses not just His one son and heir, He addresses O sons. That includes daughters as well. He's speaking in general to His people. He says, listen to me and resist her, for many are her victims. A mighty throng have gone down into the chambers of death. Think about the Bible. Think about some of the most important figures in the Scriptures. Consider Abraham, the man of faith. He fell into this trap. Or King David, who we've already thought about, a man after God's own heart. This was his biggest failure. Or Solomon himself, the wisest king of Israel, who didn't practice what he preached here, but loved many forbidden women and turned his heart away from the Lord. How can we hope to resist where they all failed? Do we just try harder? Try and grit our teeth and do our best and see how it goes? Do we memorize more Bible? pray more prayers? And haven't we already seen in the words of Jesus how miserably we've all failed? That the standard isn't only adultery, but it's even adultery in our hearts. We've all fallen short of God's holy standard here, haven't we? Every single one of us. But in the gospel, there is hope for sinners. There is hope for us to be forgiven of our sins, and there is hope for us to resist sin. There is hope for forgiveness because Jesus, Jesus who never sinned, went down into Sheol, down into the chambers of death for our sexual sin, for those thoughts and deeds that you've done that have broken this commandment. He experienced death for you, was judged in your place, and He rose victorious three days later. The wages of sin are death, and He took it so that the free gift of grace, the free gift of God, of eternal life, could be ours in Him as well. Jesus paid our debt by dying in our place as our substitute. He bore God's wrath against our sin, all of it, 
so that all of our sin, every evil thought, every evil deed might be thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Jesus offers us not only hope for forgiveness, but hope to resist and to have victory in this area too. When we embrace Jesus, the Word of God, the Word who became flesh, we have the power to resist all sin, including sexual sin. God actually promises to give us new hearts on which He can write His law. Brothers and sisters, don't believe the lie that you can't overcome temptation in this area. Jesus died and rose again so that you could, to free you from the seduction of sin, so that you could resist. When you embrace Jesus by faith, you have the power to resist sin in your life. All kinds of sin, including sexual sin. And friends, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that clearly. That all it takes to be forgiven and to be given the power to resist sin in your life is to embrace Jesus by faith. To turn and trust and put your hope in Him. To recognize that your sin leads to death but that He offers eternal life. You can do that. You can do that even today. As we've seen, God's Word will keep us from sin, or sin will keep us from God's Word. And so, embrace God's Word, friends. Don't linger in sin's neighborhood. Don't lust after sin. Don't listen to sin's lies. See that sin only leads to death. But embracing God, embracing Christ, leads to joy and satisfaction and life forevermore. And so we're left with a choice. Will we be her next victim or will we resist by embracing God's Word? Let's pray that we do. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are holy, holy, holy and that you do take all sin seriously, and that all sin leads to death and judgment. And yet you've given us grace and forgiveness in Christ, and you've given us the power to resist sin and its seductive lies, Lord. Help us to do that more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.